turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Hey everyone, as some of you know, recently I had a discussion with Spencer Clavin for our December Thinker of the Month series where we profiled the life, example, and influence of Jesus Christ. Because it is Christmas time, today I'm having another discussion on Christianity, Jesus, and the Bible, this time with Reverend Alastair Begg, pastor of Parkside Church in Cleveland, Ohio, and host of the great Truth For Life Christian Radio Ministry. I'm Julie Hartman, and this is Timeless. Hey everyone, and welcome to Timeless in the Julie Hartman YouTube channel. In addition to Timeless, you can also catch my show with Dennis Prager that premieres every Monday on this channel. And of, clo- and of course, Timeless is on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. And all of those premiere at the same time, 1 o'clock Pacific, 4 o'clock Eastern. And you can listen to them on Apple and Spotify and anywhere you get your podcasts. Now, for those of you who do listen to Dennis and Julie in particular... You know from our recent episodes that I've been talking a lot about my faith journey. I wanted to say that I'm at the beginning of that journey where I'm not quite sure what I believe, but I do know that I have a profound reverence for Judeo-Christian values and especially the role that they played in the founding and shaping of this great nation. But I really am trying to take seriously finding a religious home, if you will, and I have been so lucky to encounter the work of Reverend Alistair Begg. He has really set me down a good path of figuring out what I believe and making God in the Bible more central in my life. Reverend Begg, as I mentioned, has been the pastor of Cleveland, Ohio's Parkside Church for 40 years. He's the host of the Truth For Life Christian Radio Ministry, which broadcasts daily sermons to over 1,800 outlets in North America. He's also the author of several fantastic books, including What Angels Wish They Knew, The Basics of True Christianity, Pathway to Freedom, How God's Laws Guide Our Lives, Christmas playlist for songs that bring you to the heart of Christmas. That in particular would be a good Christmas present at this time of year. Brave by Faith and Truth for Life, 365 Daily Devotions. Hello, Alistair, and welcome to Timeless. Well, hello to you, Julie. It's a real treat, actually, to get the chance to see you and to talk with you. Oh, well, thank you so much for saying that. And I want the audience to know that Reverend Begg told me before off the air that I could call him Alistair. I don't want people to think that I'm impolite. You know, we we live in this culture now where kids call adults by their first names. Maybe that's just something that I see here in Los Angeles, but I've always thought that was so weird. And even though I'm not a kid, I always go out of my way to do the to take the polite name. But nevertheless, you did give me permission. So again, Alistair, it's great to see you. And thank you for your time. 
Well, thank you, Miss Hartman. <laughs> well, you can call me Julie. I'll give you permission to, to call me by thank my first you, name. Thank you. Okay. I want to start off by asking where you're from. I know that you're of Scottish descent or ancestry, but did you grow up in Scotland? And what was your path to getting ordained? Well, yes, I grew up in Scotland. I was born in Glasgow, which uh, was at one point in history, the second city of the British Empire. Uh, I was uh, born there in 1952, which is why you uh, feel duty-bound to refer to me by my last name. (laughs) And uh, I was there until I was 15 years of age when we moved to England. And in the context of England, I... Um, professed faith in Jesus, and in the course, the unfolding course of my life, um, I ended up by a circuitous route, uh, finally bowing my knee to the whole idea of becoming one of these, uh, what I regarded as rather strange clergymen. Uh, That had not been my path, that had not been what I was hoping to do or planning to do, But when I finally, uh, if you like, threw in my lot with the cause, then um, everything has essentially gone from there now over these last many, many years. Um, And I find myself uh, in the privileged position of doing what it is I do. It's amazing to me that so early on in your life, you discovered and professed your faith in Jesus Christ. Because we live in a time now, as we will discuss more in this interview, where so many young people not only don't believe, but they don't really even know a lot about Jesus Christ. That's why I had Spencer Clavin on this show earlier this week. And part of the reason why I'm interviewing you is to kind of spread the word, if you will, especially among people in my age group who who really, uh, at astonishing rates, have not encountered any kind of Christian theology. So did you grow up in a religious household or did you kind of come to Christ on your own? No, I I grew up, I suppose you would call it a religious household if we're using religion as the sort of general expression of interest in and involvement with Christianity. Um, I had an upbringing that um, went as far north as the highlands of Scotland uh, to uh, a grandfather that I had never met, uh, to a grandmother that I did meet briefly, but I was nurtured within a, within a framework of not simply God consciousness, but uh, a framework where there was a vibrant uh, reality to the notion of knowing God and being known by God. And so I, I, my, my upbringing was very privileged in that respect, I regard it as privilege, looking back on it. Sometimes in the experience of it, I might have regarded it as a little strange. But no, I, you know, I was born seven years after the end of the, the Second World War within the framework of Scotland at that time in a way that isn't true today. Many of the things that you were just mentioning, Julie, that are absent from the, the um, framework of thinking in today's younger generation were present at that time, uh, an idea of the reality of God, that his laws were uh, to be respected, 
that they were there not only to protect us, but also to provide for us and so on. But, you know, no matter how much that is represented either in your home or in your school or whatever it is, it's, it, the way in which the, the Bible unfolds, it's clear that everybody has to come to an understanding of that by themselves mm-hmm. and and for themselves. And so, yeah, that that would be my story, too. What do you think happened between the time that you grew up and now where you were raised consuming a cultural diet of of religion and, and God and and God being a central part of all of our lives? And now, as I've said, the the opposite is the case where we consume a very secular atheist, I would even say God and religion ridiculing cultural diet. What do you think changed? And by the way, do you do you agree with with my kind of harsh characterization of how secular and a-religious our society is now compared to the time you grew up? Well, yes, if I can start there, I would say yes, I agree entirely that if there ever has been a time in the 40 years that I've been here where we might say that the the cultural wind was in any sense behind the back of somebody professing Christianity, that wind has not simply died down, it has entirely shifted. And the wind is blowing strongly in the face of basic Christian convictions. And so there is no doubt that the Christian has really become now the bad guy. And um, the, the tide has turned severely against us. Things that might have been able to be said in a previous generation they may, with a measure of pushback, uh, they are now uh, just completely uh, ridiculed, as you say. How did we get there? A number of things. Um, you came out of the end of the wars, and uh, people had uh, many questions about the world and why the world was the way it was. Uh, those who had been turning to the church for answers found that a number of the people in the church who were supposedly the doctors of the church, the theologians of the church, had imbibed a view of Christianity, mainly as a result of the influence of liberal theology, a lot of it coming out of Germany to begin with. So the proponents of the message had begun to lose confidence in the message themselves. The people then listening to them and picking up on that, they said, well, if he doesn't actually believe this, why is he wasting my time? So one generation turns its back on God. Another generation is raised in that context. And the third generation has pretty well dispensed with God entirely. And uh, you throw into the mix of that the, the immoral revolution uh, of the 60s and all the combination of that isn't it doesn't make it very hard for me to understand why in the average uh, casual encounter when i go back to britain i find that uh, young people are as you say uh, it's not it's not that they have as chesterton said it's not that they have considered the evidence and they found it wanting it's just that they never consider the evidence mm. and so it's not that they've turned their back on something that they that they considered. They just never give it any consideration at all. I love that you brought up G.K. Chesterton. I recently read Orthodoxy. Have you read that book? 
Yes, I have. Oh, yeah. what a fun book it's that is. It's very helpful. Yeah, very yeah. helpful and also really fun. And uh, He's a funny man. Very funny man. He's funny. He he's a he's the kind of person I wish were alive so that I could get a pint with him. He just seems like yeah. a hilarious, <laughs> particularly vivacious yeah. individual. But I, I recommend Orthodoxy. By the way, I'm, I'm sure you two you do too, Alistair. To to anyone listening who like yep. me is kind of you know at the beginning of their faith journey because G.K. Chesterton he so well argues for the existence of God. But one of the things I appreciate in that book is that he doesn't overload it with religious language. And I think that we shouldn't shy away from religious language, but especially for people who kind of need an introduction and who may think that it's too much of a bombardment to go immediately into Christ will save you and the resurrection and redemption and original sin. That is a really good way to introduce you to those ideas and concepts without getting too vocab heavy. Yes, you know, we live in this time where not only do people not know about God, not only do people ridicule God, but I actually think, and I'm very curious to hear your your uh, thoughts on this, I think that we live in a time where the values that are being espoused are the exact negative image of the kind of values of the Bible. For instance, we're told today that you know if, if someone disagrees with us politically. It's not that we should try to give them grace. It's not that we should try to engage in the conversation. It's not that we should try to turn the other cheek if we uh, disagree with someone. We should get in their faces and get loud and get angry. You know, I was listening to Maxine Waters a few years ago saying, if you ever see a member of the Trump administration, you know, out in your town, create a crowd around them, make them feel unwelcome. That is so the antithesis of the kind of response that I think God or Christ would counsel you to take. That's one such example. Another example is that, you know, Judeo-Christian values teach us to temper and restrain our impulses. We now live in a world where you're supposed to indulge your your impulses, live a more hedonist life. You know, if if uh, someone tells you, for instance, to maybe not eat that fifth cupcake after dinner, you're told you're told that that person is fat phobic, and how dare you? You know, how dare they deny you that right? Uh, to give a third example, you know. God and religious values obviously teach you that there are some eternal truths and wisdom that stand above you and that you are only capable of understanding so much and you have to uh, rely on God and Christ and what they teach you to steer your life. And now we live in this world Well, no, you trust yourself. You live your truth. You do whatever you want to do. So again, it's not just that people don't know about these things, but we are being taught and advised to live in the exact opposite ways as we are taught in the Bible. Do you agree? Yeah, that's quite a run. I, uh, I yeah, I mean, I, it seems people people are totally committed to the autonomy of the self. I mean. Uh, I am the master of my own destiny. I am the one who chooses who I am and what I am, uh, right down to the level of gender now. Um, and so it's not difficult to understand how a, how a society, how a world gets this way. 
because if we start from the premise that we were made by God, we were made for God, we were made for a relationship with God. But, as the Bible teaches, that we, by nature, turn away from that. We turn our, turn our backs on that. So that we are, we are a people who are in rebellion. The story then is that this God who made us loves us so much that although we are not seeking for him, he's the one who comes seeking for us. So in the incarnation, of course, now we have this Jesus. The, the, the average view in the world is that people are somehow or another roaming the universe looking for God. They're not actually looking for God. Uh, they, they hide from God. And the wonder of the good news is that he's the one who's seeking for us. But when, unless our lives are filled up with God, they'll be filled up with something. That's why Pascal said there is in the heart of everyone a God-shaped void. And it can only be filled by God himself. And so if you think about whatever it might be, uh, the, the attempt of people to try and make sense of the jigsaw puzzle of life without paying any attention at all to the reason for their very existence. Um, and that's why the great tyranny of life, the great fear of life, is, of course, the fear of death, which underpins every other fear. And uh, the, the answer that comes you know, clearly to that is in this unique claim of this Jesus of Nazareth, who makes the most outlandish claims, right down to being the one who is the resurrection and the life, who says to the people, whoever believes in me will never see death. Who, what kind of megalomaniac makes those sort of claims? That's why C.S. Lewis said he's either the person he claims to be, or else he is a liar, or else he's someone on the level, he's a, he's a lunatic claiming to be a poached egg. I mean, that, that's the thing that is just so obvious to me, and that very seldom is raised in dialogue. People want to accommodate Jesus. He's, he can't be accommodated. He is, he is absolutely unaccommodating. So let's talk about the story, life, and role of Jesus. What function did Jesus' life and crucifixion do besides providing an example, which, by the way, is nothing to, to shrug out. It's, that is an immense utility that he provided. But as far as humans' relationship with God and their ability to gain access to the kingdom of heaven, what did Jesus' life and crucifixion do that didn't exist beforehand? Well, um, I'm going to assume a certain knowledge of the Bible on your part, that at the beginning of... Uh, the Gospel of John, which of course begins not with shepherds and mangers and, and, and wise men, but begins further back, begins in eternity. Um, the, the John, John writes his gospel and he says, the reason that I'm writing this, the reason I'm recording all these things is in order that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So that's his objective. When you read the gospel, you realize that as you read it through that framework, it suddenly takes on a certain hue. Oh, that's why we're reading about water being changed into wine. That's why we're reading about the feeding of the 5,000. That the foundation of the Old Testament 
uh, is pointing forward to a fulfillment. It's like a, the Bible is like a two-act drama. Um, <laughs> if, if you leave at the end of the first act, you don't know how the story ends. If you begin halfway through, you don't know how the story are, starts. And that's why when you ask the question, well, what was Jesus doing? He was, when, when he begins his gospel, when he, when he steps forward at the age of 30 or so, his opening gambit in the Gospel of Luke is, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. The time is fulfilled, sorry. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Now, what he means by the time is fulfilled is that all the things that the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, the kings in the Old Testament, the prophets on the Old Testament, the priests in the Old Testament, were all engaged in the great unfolding drama of redemption. But the sacrifices that were offered, uh, as although they were sincerely received, could not in and of themselves deal with the fact that man by nature is alienated from God. So when John the Baptist steps forward, he says, if you look on the other side of the Jordan, you will see the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So that what Jesus, what the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return of Jesus is all about is is his death. And his death was not as an example. In terms of his his relationships with people, his kindness, his grace, and so on, that is exemplary. But if 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 you look at the cross and say, Oh, that's an example. You've got to say to yourself, well, what kind of thing, what does that actually show? Then you read the Bible and you discover that he's not dying as an example. He's dying as a substitute. He's dying in the place of those who deserve to die. And that when a person comes to understand that, then suddenly uh, Jesus becomes uh, not an example, but a savior. Uh, But... uh, by the the one who finally puts the piece in the jigsaw puzzle that makes sense of the whole story. When I was referring to his example, I was certainly referring to, you know, his his actions, the way that he interacted sure. with people, uh not his death, but I'm I'm glad that you you do, drew that distinction. So I forgive me for for pressing on this. I just I really want to understand and I and I can't say that right now I do not through any fault of of your own just I'm I'm really really struggling with this idea that Christ is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So I understand that first part that he is seen as because in in the Old Testament what you would do is if you sinned then you would sacrifice a lamb as part of your repentance or atonement. And so Christ is is the lamb of God. Uh, through which our sins can can be redeemed, so we no longer have to sacrifice a, a lamb. But who takes away the sin of the world? I'm not quite sure I understand that. Does Christ take away original sin? Does does Christ? I mean, surely Christ hasn't taken away our own individual proclivities to sin. What does that second part mean? Well, it means that it means that he. That in, in the same way that when somebody would have gone to the temple in the Old Testament, let's say 
the father went to the, the temple. And he came home, if you like, from the service. And his children or his wife said to him, what did you do there? And he said, well, I, I, gave, I made a, a sacrifice. We, a, a lamb was given. And, uh, and his wife says, and what was that about? Uh, he said, well, it was for my sins. And she said, well, uh, were your sins forgiven? And he said, yes. And his wife said, how do you know? And he said, because God promised that that was the means whereby he would forgive my sins. Now, the exact same thing is true then when you look upon the cross of Christ. He's dying there in the place of all who come to trust in him, who come to acknowledge that what was happening up there was not some kind of blanket solution, but was actually somebody who was dying in my place. I mean, if you think about the story of the crucifixion, and you remember how there was a guy, Barabbas, who was about to be crucified there. And Pilate says, would you like me to release Barabbas to you? They said, no, don't release Barabbas, crucify Jesus. And Jesus is crucified. And it's always struck me that if there was one person in Jerusalem understood the idea of a substitute, then it had to be Barabbas. Because when he looked up there, he said, that was me that should have been up there. Now, that is the reality of Christian faith, that we realize the wonder of what he has done for us on an individual basis. But let me quickly say this. All the people that are prepared to give lip service to the credence of Christianity and so on, and who are prepared to acknowledge its place in the unfolding drama of Western civilization or whatever else we might say— The fact is, Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, when he writes to the church in Corinth, he says to them, listen, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. In other words, people look at that and they say, that is the most ridiculous thing I ever heard in my life, because it is offensive to my pride. It is offensive to my pride morally because it says that I can never do enough to put myself right before God. And it is offensive to my pride intellectually because you're going to ask me to believe that the death of a Galilean carpenter is the pivotal event in all of human history. And there you find yourself with uh, C.S. Lewis, and he's wrestling with these implications. And then, of course, in his little book, Surprised by Joy, which I would recommend right along with Chesterton's orthodoxy, uh, he bears testimony to suddenly, not simply grasping it, but being grasped by it. Before we continue, I want to tell you about my pillow. I use many my pillow products. I walk into work every day wearing the my slippers, and then I quickly change into heels. I sleep on the my pillow in the Giza Dream bed sheets, and I use my towels among other products. And you can get many of these products at a discount if you use the promo code Hartman. MyPillow's latest deal is the sale of the year. For a limited time, you'll get 60% off of the aforementioned Giza Dream Bed Sheets that comes with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. You'll get a set for as low as $39.99 with the promo code Hartman. Just go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square and use the promo code Hartman or call one 800 566 
888-666-6745 and use the promo code Hartman. Along with this offer, you'll get deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the MyPillow mattress topper, the MyPillow towel sets, and more. So why is it that Jesus had to die to take away the sins of the world? In other words, why wasn't it enough for the lambs in you know in the temple to be sacrificed and then God to forgive your uh, sin because you a have atoned for it and b you have presented that sacrificial lamb? Why again did we need Christ then? Well, from the beginning of time, of course, we always needed Christ. It wasn't like it was going along pretty nicely, and then they just added this idea of the God-man. Because an inanimate object is unable to make, is unable to take that place by themselves. They are placed there. Jesus, when in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is approached by those who are about to take him captive, he makes the point, no one can take my life from me. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. And so, in order for the per- in order for the substitution to be made, it was going to have to be both divine and human. It had to be a real person, and yet it had to be a sinless person. Okay, so where are you going to find a real sinless person? Who else in all of history even made such a claim? No religious leader made such a claim. Hmm. What How are we it... doing, Julie? <laughs> no, I'm pro- <laughs> Forgive me for my pauses. Pe- no. Pe- uh, people who listen to me, Alistair, they know I never take pauses like these. I actually get anxiety when I pause for too long because I Okay. I All right. I think that it's indicating that I don't know what to say next, but I really wanted to let it seep in. You, your answers mm-hmm. are not ones that that should be responded to immediately. They they need Okay. They need to sink in. I feel the same way about your questions. Oh, well, good. I'm, I'm glad to know that. I'm, 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 seriously, I'm delighted to know that. What does it mean to be born with original sin? This is, this is something that, um, by the way, I know I keep referencing my, my uh, interview with Spencer Clavin, but we've had these two great God talks here on Timeless this week. Um, and okay. so I feel All like right. I've, been, I've been immersed in this. But I, I was talking about this with, with Spencer Clavin, and one of the things I said was that the whole idea of original sin confuses me a bit because I understand that Adam and Eve, or should I say Eve and Adam, because Eve was the first one, succumbed to temptation. They disobeyed God, and that is a sin. And I do believe that you have responsibility for your actions, and you can't blame anyone else for decisions you make that are not the decisions that you should have made. But God, A, gave Adam and Eve the proclivity to sin. They gave them the, the... the proclivity to succumb to temptation. And also God created the serpent and put the serpent in the garden. And we know God created the serpent because the line in Genesis is the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild beasts who the Lord God had created. So God 
put the serpent in the garden to tempt them. So again, this I'm of two minds about this because I know that they disobeyed God. But another part of me asks, is it really fair to say that it's an original sin if they were in this kind of innocent state of gar- in the Garden of Eden, they had this temptation which was put there by God and they were given the proclivity to succumb to it. Can we really fully blame them and say that this is this catastrophic sinful event that forever tarnished humanity? Well, we could turn it around the other way and say how gracious God was to give them the most spectacular place in which to live, not to make them automatons who had simply to um, operate on the basis of his divine programming, but gave them the ability to, pr- to show him that they loved him for all that he had provided for them by simply obeying the one thing he asked them to do. Mm-hmm. He, they, the, the, the freedom that they had to do that is if, if you know, in, in a love relationship, if, if the only reason after 48 years, the only reason I love my wife is because I'm supposed to or whatever it might be, there's not a lot there. It's the very fact that I could not love her that makes my love for her all the more real. So, and, and here's the thing. The mystery of evil itself is a, is a good – we better have that as a separate program. <laughs> but if we, if we think for a moment that, that God did not program so that he didn't, he did not, he didn't tempt them. He didn't tempt them. He, test, he provided a test, and they failed the test. And as the representative of humanity, they brought humanity down with us. Now, if you leave that sitting for just a moment and then go to the average uh, preschool class or nursery or something and observe humanity in its sort of pristine best, if you like, you're left saying to yourself, why the jealousy? Why the spite? Why the selfishness? Why the sort of and then go just take it up through the generations. Why the animosity? Why these things? And the, and the Bible says because endemic in our hearts is having been made to love, uh, know, serve, and obey God, we decided not to. And as a result of that, we live with the implications of it. And the originality of it is is to face the fact that nobody ever told me to be rude to my parents. Nobody ever told me to be jealous of my siblings. No one ever told me to use filthy language. Somehow or another, I just managed to produce it on my own. (laughs) And it's because my heart is dark and I'm turned, you know, as Augustine, as Luther says, the trouble is that we're turned in upon ourselves. We're turned in upon ourselves. And the story of conversion is for God to coming into that self and reorientating it entirely and turning it in, a, in another direction. You see, the lie is, the lie in the garden is, God did not want you to have a really good life. That's why he doesn't want you to have that. That's the reverse of the case. I see. The, the laws of God, the laws of God are not to spoil our lives. Monogamy is a good deal. Honesty is a good deal. Kindness is a good deal. And th- that framework is the, 
that, that, that framework, the, the, only, the only person the reality of that is fulfilled in is Jesus of Nazareth. That he's the only person who, who kept the law in its entirety. Why did he do that? Because we're lawbreakers. In order, that, in order that his righteousness could become our righteousness. That, that it, it, you know, you went, to, you went to a good university. This would never happen. But, but the story of redemption is that by justification, Jesus gets my F and I get his A. Hmm. Entirely undeserved and entirely unearned. And what he was doing up there on that cross was making it possible for me to get an A, despite the fact that my life is marked by D's, E's, and F's. And he Most was, people don't even ponder that. And he was making it possible for you to get the A through his example yes. that he set for you and through the possibility no. of redemption through belief in him. Well... He, he was at, what it says in the scriptures is that he was bearing our sins in his body on the tree. That, that he who knew no sin became sin for us in order that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, it, it, the story of the Bible is really the story of these great exchanges that that. We have exchanged the glory of God for a lie, and so we worship created things. We worship ourselves. We worship creatures. And, and God has created this great exchange whereby he has taken upon himself our predicament in order that he might grant to us a privilege that we don't by nature deserve. That's why Christianity ought to make hum- ought to make people, genuine Christianity ought to make us humble. Because mm-hmm. then we don't go around telling people, you know, why don't you wise up? Why don't you get smart like us? Why don't you figure this out? I mean, when I've, when I've the couple of times I've debated with Dennis Prager, uh, both in Arizona and in Los Angeles, and I admire Dennis very much indeed, but we disagree fundamentally at this level. And we have to. Because, as I said to you before, Jesus cannot be accommodated. Um, my, my Hindu friends believe that incarnation is, you know, happens multiple times. Christianity says the incarnation was a unique and unrepeatable event. My Jewish friends say that Jesus is not the Messiah. We say he is. Islam has scales. You try and outweigh the bad with enough of the good, and hopefully you get through. And and Christianity is a cross. And it just seems logically that we can't all be right. Either we're all wrong, or one's right and the rest are wrong. But we're not all right. Mm. One of the things I find to be so powerful about Christianity is that you can, through your belief not fully wipe away your past, but really turn your life around if you have had a, a dark past and in a, in a kind of way wipe away some of the bad actions that you've done. And that's through, through your faith and through a kind of vehicle of thought of believing in God. I want to ask you what, how Christianity balances thoughts and actions. In other words, let's, let's consider it with a scenario. 
if you are a bad person, like a terrible, terrible person for 95% of your life, but then in the final few years, you really come to Christ, you realize your wayward uh, ways, you repent, you believe in him, and you endeavor to live your remaining time in service of God. According to Christianity, is that enough to to get you to heaven, even though for 95% of your life you were terrible? Is it immediately the belief in God that, that would facilitate your getting to heaven, or do you have to engage in some amount of good deeds to wipe away all of the bad deeds? <laughs> These are good questions, Julie. I hope so. I know um, I'm throwing a lot at you, but... But no, it's I love fine. this. It's fine. I, uh, it's fine. I um, well, you think about it. You've got you've got the classic illustration again in Jerusalem with the the two thieves that are crucified on either side of Jesus. And if you remember, the dialogue that ensues is first of all vitriolic in relationship to Jesus, and then one of the thieves miraculously suddenly wises up and he says to his other friend, he says, you know, we are up here getting what we deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then interestingly, he says, Lord, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus says, yeah. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now let's just fast forward and say, all right, let's suppose somehow or another in the way it works, uh, the, the thief on the cross arrives at the, uh, the pearly gates. This is fiction. And uh, they're, they're interviewing him. They say, well, uh, were you a church member? He said, no. Would you say you were a religious person? He said, no, I wasn't at all. Um, well, I mean, what kind of life have you lived? Well, I was a thief and a, a robber. I was a... I was, I was a disaster zone. And then they said, well, what in the world are you doing here? What, and what, on what basis do you believe there should be any possibility of you making entry into heaven? And his answer was simply, that man on the middle cross said that I can come. And no matter what our story in life might be, the security of our eternal redemption does not lie on our ability to articulate things or our subjective sense of assurance. Our, our, Our foundation lies in the authority and truthfulness of this Jesus of Nazareth. And that doesn't... But... But, of course, you asked, what if the person lived another long while? If the thief had gone down from the cross, what would you expect? Well, you would expect that he would have spent the rest of his life saying, I can't believe it, but that guy gave me, uh, gave me freedom. He gave me forgiveness. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it makes me think of another story. You know, the story in the Gospels where the man has his legs. He's, he's a paralyzed man. His friends take him to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Everybody in the place realizes this guy's got a problem. They let him down into the company of Jesus, and Jesus says the most unbelievable thing. He says, your sins are forgiven. Now, anybody that was in that room said, no, 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 you don't understand. 
he didn't come here for an invisible forgiveness. He came here for a physical healing. What in the world was Jesus doing? Well, of course, he healed the man. The man was able to walk away. But he was putting his finger on the man's real need. That is everybody's real need. The need for forgiveness and the need to be reconciled to God. And that is what Jesus has come to do. That is what Jesus has done. And that is what Jesus will do for all who come to him in repentance and in faith. If you could advise people in my generation, and I'm 24 years old, to read just <laughs> one story in the New Testament and surrounding the life of Jesus, what, what is the story that you would counsel us to be acquainted with? Of course, we should read all of it, A, to be informed citizens, and B, to facilitate a, a kind of belief. Yeah. A good worldview, but but what, what, in other words, what's your favorite story in the New Testament? Well, Julia, that that's like asking me what's my favorite book, because <laughs> usually my answer to that is the book that I'm presently reading, because I get excited oh gosh, about my same. books. And so, same with me. Yeah, and so, I, I have just finished the sixth chapter of John's Gospel. Therefore, I'm going to answer by saying, I would suggest that people read the sixth chapter of John's gospel, which begins with the feeding of the 5,000. And then it goes on from there. Uh, Jesus walks on the water. He infuriates the people by telling them, the only reason you're following me is because I gave you a nice meal and you, you like food and you like free things and you actually thought about making me a king. But he says, I need to tell you that I am the bread of life. And whoever feeds on me will never hunger. And whoever believes me will never thirst. So I would say to people, let's read the entire chapter, chapter 6 of the Gospel of John, and then we'll talk some more. <laughs> That's my homework. <laughs> yes. I'm yes. a homework girl. You can, you, you can text me. Yeah. Text uh, me with your questions. Yeah. I, I, I always say I'm a homework girl. If you tell me to do some homework, I'll I'll do it. So I will definitely read that. You know which one I was reading recently? I have a chronological Bible uh, book. Mm -hmm. So I, I regrettably can't remember if it's in, in Luke or Matthew. I think it's in one of those two. But it's early on in Christ's life when he goes to the desert for 40 days and he's tempted by Satan. Yep. And Satan comes to him. I, I, I'm so drawn to that story for some reason. I can, I can perhaps analyze why. But to give a synopsis, and correct me if I get anything wrong, Christ, no, goes no, in, it's good. Christ goes into the desert for 40 days, and he's tempted. He's visited by Satan who tempts him. And, and Satan says to him, because, he's, because Christ is fasting in the desert, and Satan says to him, well, you know, if you're the son of God, why don't you turn those stones into bread? If you're the son of God, why don't you throw yourself off of this cliff and show that you're the son of God and that God will send angels down to rescue you and you will not, you know, fall to your death. In other words, Satan is saying, prove it. And I love Christ's response. He says something along the lines of, I don't test my God. My God tests me. Mm-hmm. Perhaps just for a moment, I can analyze why I like that story. I like it because it, 
first of all, it shows a worldview that so few people now have, which is that evil is always going to find a way into your life to tempt you, to test you, to try to make you into someone that you're not. And I just love the kind of framing of that that whole story that, again, the existence of evil is a feature of life and not a bug. And you have to constantly be aware of it and and prove that that you are not going to succumb to it. And I also, of course, appreciate and admire the steadfastness that Christ demonstrates in that story. What do you make of that story? What do you what do you think it teaches us? Well, I, I think that I thought what you were going to say, given that I had just said about the bread of life, that you were going to say that Jesus' response on each occasion is to quote Scripture to him. So his first response is to say, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out yes. of the mouth of the Lord. And, and so the thing that strikes me about that is that Jesus, in, in um, all of the reality of his humanity— is at the same time divine. And Jesus is quoting the Bible. He's quoting the Old Testament, which is a reminder of the fact that Jesus grew up in a Jewish home, learning the Psalms, learning the prophets, learning all of this material. And so his natural recourse is to use the ammunition that had been given to him as a boy growing up. And it further reinforces for me again the fact that the confidence of heaven is actually in the Bible itself. And that is part of the reason, and this is for another discussion if we ever have one, is part of the reason why there is a complete onslaught against the authority and the sufficiency of the Bible. Uh, Because uh, once that goes, uh, we've really got nothing left to say for ourselves. And Jesus, Jesus models that. We're almost out of time, unfortunately, but I would love to have you on again to to continue this discussion. But one of the things I've appreciated about our time together today is that we've we started out acknowledging that our society needs more of God and what a shame it is that that people have turned their backs on God. And then we transitioned into this great theological discussion where I was asking you questions of things that I didn't quite understand. And I love that because it shows that to struggle with God is not to turn your back on God. I struggle with God on a daily basis. As I as I told you in the audience, you know, I'm on my my faith journey. I don't know what I believe. But just because it doesn't all make sense doesn't mean that there's nothing to it and that the values and principles in this book aren't relevant. So I'm I'm glad for us if we may uh <laughs> succumb to the sin of pride here uh, in Christianity and give ourselves a pat on the back because uh, hopefully we've demonstrated that, again, to struggle with God is normal and necessary, and you can both have reverence and also an appropriate amount of confusion. Do, do you still in – I know that obviously you, you've been at this for a long time. Do you still struggle with, with things in your yeah. faith, I uh, uh, yeah. As I was just listening to you uh, in that very helpful piece there, I was thinking of Augustine. You know, and Augustine said that the the journey of Christian living is faith seeking understanding. 
mm-hmm. and that uh, we we come to this by faith, and uh, we it's a bit like you know we exercise faith all the time. I mean, sitting on, sitting on a chair at one level, we're I haven't seen many people checking the foundations of the chair very often. They just they're believing that it will hold them up. It's when they sit in it that they discover whether it will or not. So I come to Jesus and I say, okay, this is the promise that you've made. I'm going to take you at your word, and now I'm going to understand whether that was valid or not as I proceed along this road. So that we start with faith. Um, You know, it's it's on the inside of a church when the sun shines— that you see the beauty of the stained glass. From the outside, the windows appear just to be standard windows. But when you step inside and the light shines through, suddenly it takes on an entirely different dimension. And that would be my experience of Christian faith. And that's what I want to say to you or to anybody else. Step inside and let the light of God's word shine through and uh, and give you confidence in order to continue on this path. G.K. Chesterton, who we've referenced throughout this discussion, has a fantastic line. It's actually the first sentence of the second, or, or excuse me, the first sentence of the last paragraph of Orthodoxy. And he says, Joy is the small publicity of the pagan, but the gigantic secret of the Christian. And again, even though I don't fully understand everything about Christianity, I don't quite know what I believe. One of the greatest uh, endorsements of Christianity, or I guess a different way to phrase it is, is one of the things that makes me think, huh, there is something to this, is encountering people like you and so many other Christians who do have that kind of joy, even if they don't trumpet it out at all times. There's a kind of joy and serenity and humbleness that so many of these individuals have. And and that is one of the greatest reasons why I, as you say, want to go inside and let it all kind of seep into me. So thank you for helping me do so today. I very much enjoyed speaking with you. I appreciate your time, especially during Christmas season when I bet you are very busy. And I look forward to hopefully continuing our discussion soon. Uh, Julie, thank you. It's been my privilege. I was delighted when the invitation came. Um, I don't know where I'm speaking to you. Where are you? I'm in Los Angeles. Okay. So you're there with all my friends, all my Salem friends. Yes. And... uh, Yes, they're all they're They've been my friends for a long time. And uh, so perhaps when I come to Los Angeles in March, uh, we'll get the chance to do this again. Not okay. that I'm inviting me on your program. Oh, but, you're, please invite but, um, yourself. You, yeah. you, you are absolutely Not, invited. All right. Well, thank you. Well, you have a wonderful Christmas. And if I can ever be of encouragement, you know where I am. Thank you very much, Alistair. And thanks to all of you so much for watching. Merry Almas Christmas. I hope that you are enjoying this holiday season, and I'll see you here soon. Take care.